Well, good morning again. <laughs> it's, um, it's always an exciting thing for me to, um, to be here with us, not simply to preach the word, but to just have the fellowship that we do. Uh, so encouraging to my heart. Um, most of us are, are working during the week and uh, involved in so many different things, and then to come together on such an occasion like this is just such a joy. We are in the midst or towards the end of a study regarding the church, God's revealed plan for his church. If you've been with us for any length of time, you'll know that is pretty much the theme for this year. We want to get a handle on what church is all about, biblically, not culturally, not contemporaneously, but biblically. And we've already talked about this on a number of occasions. There are three forms of leadership in the church. As revealed in the scriptures. Number one, preeminent leadership. That is simply Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Um, He is not to be contended with, competed with. He is the absolute ruler of his church that he purchased with his blood. Preeminent leadership. The second thing we spent some time looking at was pastoral leadership. That is local spiritual leadership of the church in the form of pastors, elders. And we've talked about the synonyms there, pastor and elder, overseer, all the same individuals, just different forms of what they do. And then the third thing, which is where we are today towards the end of it, is we're looking at practical leadership. That is the local church's practical leadership in the form of deacons and deaconesses and how that all operates in the church. Lord willing... And I said, Lord willing, because it will be dependent upon him, let me assure you, we will finish our church leadership study today. Once we look at the qualifications and the responsibilities of deacons and deaconesses. I want to remind you of a couple of important things that we discussed last week. By the way, if you have not heard last week's message, you come into part two with uh, perhaps a few shackles on your eyes because last week is foundational to this week. So if you're visiting with us or some of this may not make sense, let me encourage you to get the notes or the message from last week. But here's some reminders for us. A deacon or deaconess is a servant of the church. I believe that today we have a total misunderstanding, a misrepresentation, a misidentifying of what deacons and deaconesses really are in the church. Today we observe churches that are completely unbiblical as it relates to this practical leadership model. I want to be very clear this morning. Deacons and deaconesses are not called to spiritual leadership in the church that is the responsibility of those who are called to be elders or pastors however let me be quick to say that deacons and deaconesses must possess the same spiritual quality and attributes as those of an elder but different responsibilities the bible is very clear when you look at first timothy chapter 3 and you compare the elder and the deacon and the deaconesses you find that the spiritual criteria is the same but the role and the calling is different we need to be very clear on that one of the greatest problems in the church today i believe is a misunderstanding of biblical leadership in the church when elders who are called to spiritual leadership are busy with the practicalities of the church and the deacons are consumed with making spiritual decisions, there's a spiritual identity crisis. Nobody knows what's going on and the wrong people are doing the wrong tasks. We have square pegs in round holes and it's not the way it's supposed to be. And may I say furthermore, if we get it wrong, it's no wonder why spiritual growth is stunted in God's church. Because he has clearly defined in the scriptures how it ought to be. And so we want to be very careful to understand God's perspective on it. So this morning, Lord willing, we will close this matter of practical leadership part two. That's the title. And let's pray. Father, as we look to your word uh, here this morning, we pray for wisdom, for insight, for understanding. Uh, that we would rightly divide your word. We are wanting to be ever so careful, uh, Lord, not to misuse or misinterpret that which you've revealed by the Spirit of God to us. We thank you for this precious book that we hold in our hands. We thank you for all the authors that you have used to bring it together. 
We thank you for the testimony of this book that it has changed countless lives. And so, Lord, we pray it would change us some more today. Help us to understand more and more about your word, about the church, about how you uh, have designed leadership in the church, that we would not be uh, those who are prey to cultural perceptions uh, or contempor- uh, contemporary perceptions, uh, but true biblical understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Lest we get comfortable this morning with this topic, because it's very easy for us perhaps this morning to say, well, this doesn't really relate to me. I'm not presently a deacon or a deaconess in this church, which is everyone because we don't have either of them presently. So you could all find yourself feeling a little bit, well, this is sort of not really relevant, lest that should happen. We're going to begin with point number one, which should fix this entirely for us this morning. I want to talk, first of all, about the servanthood of every believer. The servanthood of every believer. Before we look at the qualifications of deacons and deaconesses, it is essential that we remember that these character qualities that we see in the scripture, the attributes that we're going to look at in a few moments, are not to be exclusively possessed by those in some form of leadership. The Bible was not written for the elder to live out. The Bible was written for the Christian to live out. We understand that. And so we need to be very careful that we don't quickly just say, well, that's not for me, which is our tendency. So lest that should happen, I'd like you to turn with me to John chapter 13, if you would, please. First of all, John chapter 13. Once you're there, I just want to make a few introductory comments before we read this portion. And then we'll launch into the rest. John chapter 13. Let me say this as you are turning there. Every Christian, every Christian, every Christian in this room must strive to make these qualities a reality whether or not they ever function in the role of leadership on any level in the church. The criteria for the elder, the bishop, the deacon, the deaconesses, etc., is none other than God's expectation for ordinary Christian life. Did you get that? This is not some super Christianity that some are supposed to achieve. This is what we are all aiming for. Every one of us is seeking to be Christ-like if we are where we should be before the Lord. So when we look at a passage like this, again, we ought not to say, that's only for them. We ought to say, Lord, I want to be like this, because this is Christ-likeness. This is what you want from me. So the question this morning is not this. What's your title of leadership? What's your role? The question is this. Am I like Christ? That's the question. It's not about titles. It's not about roles. It's not about leadership responsibilities. The question really at the end of the day for every Christian is, am I like Christ? Am I becoming more and more like him? Every Christian is called to be a disciple. And in case we are tempted to misunderstand this calling, I want to read for us from John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. If you'd follow along, please. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What a precious verse. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. I love Peter. (laughs) I love how Peter does that. Okay, don't just wash my feet. Wash all of me then. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. 
When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I don't know if we fully comprehend this reality, but here is the Lord of glory, the creator of the ends of the earth. Colossians tells us through him and by him and for him, all things exist. This is the magnificent God in flesh come down to dwell amongst us. Here he is in just a little while. He's going to go to the cross and he's going to outstretch his arms upon that cross for your sins and for mine and die as the ransom, the redeeming one for my sin. He's going to purchase me with his precious blood in just a few hours. This is Jesus Christ. And you know what astounds me more than anything else in this text? It's not that he washed the disciples' feet. It's that he washed Judas Iscariot's feet knowing full well what he was just about to do lest we think for a moment that this servanthood that we're going to talk about this deacon and deaconess type thing is just about those people over there let us remember what our calling as a disciple of Jesus Christ is here is Jesus Christ the Lord of glory and he kneels down and begins to wash the disciples feet by the way this is not a metaphor this wasn't something that is just a there is a parabolic type statement jesus literally got down on his hands and knees and washed the dirty disciples feet now this morning in our cultured situation in our nice clothes and so forth this makes really very little sense but could you imagine if someone walked in here and began at the front row started to take off someone's shoes and began to wash those we would be like what are they doing What a strange situation. We can't culturally understand how that all operates. These are people who the servant would literally be enrolled, employed to do this at the household. And here the Lord Jesus says, I am your servant. I'm the one who's going to do that for you. When we get to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we read that the deacon and deaconess is a servant. Is a servant. It ought to be our desire as a disciple, all of us, to be deacons and deaconesses. Not that we all will be, but we ought to operate like that. Because you know who the greatest deacon in the history of time was? None other than Jesus Christ. Here is diaconate in the best form right here on this day when he stoops down and washes the disciples' feet. The servanthood of every believer. I want us to be mindful of that before we go to 1 Timothy 3. Because this is critical. It's not just a, a class of people. This is discipleship. Living as Christians uh, is to live as a servant of Jesus Christ. Turn with me now, if you would, with that introduction to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I hope that sets us for the rest of the message today with the right mentality. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Those called to practical leadership in the church of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at, secondly here, we've looked very briefly, the servanthood of every believer. Now we're going to look at what the qualifications then are in the scripture for a deacon or a deaconess. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, if you would. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. 
need to be mindful that this is the only clear passage in the Bible that specifically deals with this subject of deacons as a role and deaconesses as a role in the local church. No other place. Some people like to go to a passage in Acts that talks about when the church was uh, early established and they selected seven men for various things. Although that may be a type of a diaconate, if you like, the Bible never says that. This is the only passage that deals with the qualifications and the criteria for those who are in practical leadership. Last week, if you were here, if you weren't, you're going to be a little bit in the dark with this next part, but... If you were here last week, you will remember that we looked very carefully at the scripture and we noted that there is a clear break in this passage. Verses 8 and 9 and 10 deal with the male deacon. And then it continues after verse uh, verse 12 onwards. So verse 8, 9 and 10 deal with the male deacon. Verse 11 deals with the female deacon. And let me very quickly cover that off just so we're clear. Verse 11 says, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. You'll recall that uh, I provided us with uh, last week some information that I believe proves to us that this word wives is not what should be here in our English translation. We understand this morning we don't deal with an inerrant English translation. We don't deal with something that is completely accurate in every sense. We require study. We must look into the original and understand things. There's a couple of key things we need to know about this particular verse in verse 11. There does not appear... Okay, that word is not in the original, that word there. Wives is the same word that is translated for women in general. And so we could read this passage as, Likewise, women must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And after careful study, I believe that this is precisely what the text is teaching us here. And the problem we have in most circles is that we don't understand what a deacon and deaconess is. Therefore, we get nervous about how this gender type thing works. But if we understand that a deacon or deaconess is a servant of the church, not responsible for the public preaching and teaching of the word of God like I am here this morning, but responsible for practical leadership, we see very clearly in the scriptures that it is available to both men and women. Furthermore, you remember last week, I mentioned that it is very unusual if this is dealing with the wives of deacons, why a wife of a deacon has specific criteria, but the wife of an elder does not. And yet they're responsible for spiritual leadership. Something doesn't work there. And so I believe that the first part is dealing with deacons. He goes off to the side, talk about deaconesses for a moment, and then he comes back to finish off dealing with deacons. So that's what we're going to follow this morning. So let's look at what qualifications the Bible says for a deacon, beginning in verse 8. And I'm just going to pretty much rattle these off for you because we don't have time to go into the details of it all. First of all, the Bible says he must be dignified. Dignified. Literally honourable. It is respectful in life and character. In other words, he's to be serious-minded and not treat that which is serious lightly. So when we're looking for those in our midst here who fit the category of a deacon in the male form, we need to understand these are people who take God and his word and the church seriously. Secondly, in verse 8, not double-tongued, you'll see. This speaks of being two-faced. He's not hypocritical. He's not a malicious gossip. He's not destroying his ministry and his credibility by the words that he speaks. He guards his tongue well. So again, as we survey the congregation in times to come and look for those who meet the criteria, they must take seriously the things of God, but they must guard their lips very carefully. And we know the danger of our tongues, according to James chapter 3, don't we? It's a little fire. It can turn the whole world of nature on fire. Thirdly, we see in verse 8, he is not addicted to much wine. I don't believe this is so much dealing specifically with the, uh, the wine beverage as much as it is dealing with being self-controlled, with being disciplined. Although wine is very much a part of this daily life in this culture, and I do think it relates to that, the concept here is this man is noted for his sobriety. 
This is someone who you can look at and you say, he, he, he's vigilant, his mind is engaged, he's not addicted to things, he's not, he's not uh, undisciplined in his lifestyle, and uh, in particular, he's not one who is addicted to wine, without addictions. Fourthly, we see in verse 8, the Bible says, not greedy for dishonest gain. Now, we're going to talk about some of the roles of the deacon in a little while, but one thing that jumps out from the text in scriptures, various places, is that these people are going to be involved in the money aspects of the church, quite possibly uh, organizing the treasury and, and distributing all of that. And so this person cannot be greedy for dishonest gain. Mammon cannot be his God. He cannot be concerned with money and the pursuit of wealth and make that a love. That cannot be his goal. Deals with his motives and the purposes of his heart. This man must be someone who is consumed with a passion for God, not wealth, not fame, not fortune, but God. Not self-seeking goals. Number five, Paul says that this man must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This is a very interesting attribute of a deacon. In other words, it's being sound in faith. We would say this, his behavior is consistent with his belief. Here is a man who says things and does them. None of us appreciate someone who would say, you go do this. And then we look at their life and we see precisely the opposite taking place. This man is not to be a hypocrite. His genuine convictions must be based on biblical doctrine and a life that demonstrates it. He holds the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Number six in verse 10, we are told that he must be tested. Tested. This is an interesting concept. This literally means we must prove the worth and the character of this individual. It means that we have taken a long, hard look at this person and ensure that there is some consistency over a portion of time. This is not just uh, an amateur or a rookie to the faith. This must be someone who is, has proven track record in this realm of being faithful in these different areas. And so clearly we are, we're not looking for someone who has just begun their journey of faith, although... We want to encourage those people. We understand this must be tested, proven, must be seen. It denotes time and maturity. And then in verse 10, the final aspect in this area, we read, they must prove themselves blameless without moral blemish. The Greek literally could be read like this. Let them serve as deacons if they are in the process of being morally pure. Here's the point in the Greek. It's they are living a consistently moral life. Now, we want to pause and say, I don't believe the scripture says because there's been an area of their life in the past that has been immoral, they've sinned in some area, that they then are totally disqualified because they're no longer blind. We're not saying that. What we are saying, though, that if something has occurred in the life, that there is surely some time of proving and, and seeing a consistency in the change of that person's life. You know, The person who's been involved in, in some sort of uh, sexual immorality or whatever the case may be, Sure, they're not going to jump straight into this position here, but we understand that just because that has happened, that does not mean that they are somehow fully disqualified for the rest of their life. But there must be a moral blamelessness presently in the process of their living. We look at that life and we say, as we can see it from our perspective, this person here is living before God in a blameless manner. And we rejoice in that. Then we jump to verse 12, because verse 11 is for the ladies. Verse 12 continues for the men. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife. Now, this particular subject has been misused and misconstrued just about for as long as I can think and have heard messages on it all my life. And I want to try and clarify this for us here this morning. The husband of one wife. This literally means a one woman man that's what the greek says a one woman man it means that this deacon this man is physically and emotionally and intimately connected with his wife and no other woman total consecration and devotion to his wife this does not mean that he cannot be divorced 
That's not what this text means. This text does not mean that because that person is divorced, they are immediately disqualified from being involved in practical leadership in a church. That's not what this verse means at all. In fact, I would suggest to you, if it does mean that, we have a real problem with the realm of salvation because the only thing that is not covered, therefore, by the blood of Jesus Christ for those in leadership is the fact that they were divorced before they were saved. We've got a real problem with that. And I don't believe that's what the Bible says at all. Now, we want to be careful. If, there is, uh, if there's divorce in that life, then we need to know why. We need to know how that's occurred. We need to know if there's affairs going on in the past or whatever. We need to be aware of all of that. But this verse does not prohibit someone who is divorced from ever serving in practical leadership. I want to be careful about that. And then the last one, the ninth qualification of a male deacon we see there in verse number 12. One who manages children and household well. Simply put, he is the spiritual head of the household. He's a leader. He's a good manager of that which God has given to him. You say, why is this important for us to know as a church? Because I want us, and I believe we ought to be a biblical church. And in due course, when the Lord reveals those ones who God would have for us to be involved in practical leadership, we want to know what it says. And we want to rejoice together in the fellowship that we have to be able to say, we've looked at this, we've learned this, we understand this. We're looking for a dignified man. We're looking for someone who's not double-tongued, someone who's not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, holds the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. He's been tested. He's blameless. He's the husband of one wife or a one-woman man. He manages his children and household well. And when we look at that, we say, praise God, we found the man and we endorse that as a church it's critical we understand that let's move to our second aspect the biblical qualifications for a deaconess which we need to see interestingly we have nine for the man we have four for the woman and I want us to be very careful when we come to this aspect because it's very easy to get things out of kilter when we talk about deaconesses, this in no way means that that particular lady has some sort of ability to usurp the authority of her husband. We understand that, I believe. We know God's pattern. God's pattern is he designed the leadership in the home male. He designed the leadership in the spiritual sense of the church to be male. We've looked at that. But that does not mean that God does not have a role for ladies as it relates to the church at all. But we also want to make sure we don't let it go both ways. It's easy to get it out of balance. Here's the four things we read of in verse 11. The first thing, their wives or women likewise must be dignified. I feel like I heard that somewhere before. Dignified is the very first one for the male deacon. It's exactly the same word used. They must be serious. The women that we're looking for who are going to be deaconesses need to be serious about the things of God. This is not a jovial thing. This is not a, a jolly thing. This is a serious task before God for the local church. And she must be honorable in life and character, worthy of respect, meeting the criteria of the entire scripture as it relates to godly women. The second thing in verse 11, not slanderers. This is not used. For the man. And that gives us perhaps an indication as we look at these different things, the different struggles that men have. Husband of one wife. It doesn't say that the woman needs to be uh, the wife of one husband. Because most of the time when we see uh, the marriage relationship, it's not so much the woman that has the problem with that. It's the man who's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Here we don't see that. We see here perhaps that slander could be an area that a woman would struggle with more than the male. And the Bible says not a slanderer. Interestingly, this word slander is often translated as literally the devil. The reason is he is the false accuser. And that's what this means. It means falsely accusing. One who's prone to slander, gossip or malign others, speaking evil. This deaconess must be one who does not do that. The woman that we are looking for is serious about the things of God and ever so careful about the tongue. Not a gossiper, not a slanderer. Thirdly, in verse 11, she is to be sober-minded. Now, this word is the same word used back in verse 2 for an elder. And it means one who is clear thinking, not out of her mind, 
vigilant, on guard and ready. I believe that this is dealing, and I hope I don't get myself into trouble with this particular comment. I think it's fair to say that uh, there is a difference between how men and women interact in different things. I hope I don't get into trouble for that. But generally, a woman, a lady, is prone to emotionalism far more than a man. And I believe that perhaps what this is dealing with is a sober-mindedness, one who is not going to let her emotions get out of kilter as she serves the local church. It's one who doesn't get out of mind when things occur, when there's things to be done, is not prone to having unclear thinking, but vigilant, on guard of her mind and ready to serve. This concept of being sober-minded And then the last thing we see as it relates to this deaconess in verse 11, it says faithful in all things. We might say dependable, trustworthy, someone who we can say they're going to fulfill that task well. She she is going to do that from start to finish and we just know that that's going to be done well. She's trustworthy, she's dependable, able to carry out the duties of the office as it relates to being a deaconess. Nine things mentioned for the deacon, the man. Four things mentioned for the deaconess. There's not a difference. There's not uh, an inequality in these roles. Both are servants in the church. The difference being one is a male and one is a female. And there are general criteria that is the same. Blamelessness, etc., etc. But then there are some specifics for the male and for the female. And so we want to be aware of them. So that deals very quickly, the quickest you've ever seen, on uh, how many was that? Nine and four, 13 points. That deals with the qualifications of the deacon and deaconess. Now I want to deal with the practicalities for a minute. That's what the Bible teaches about what we're looking for. Now we talk about the duties. Talk about what the responsibilities are of these individuals who are going to be servants of the church. See, it's difficult because we only find two other passages in the Bible that deal with this. In Romans chapter 16, we read about a lady called Phoebe, who is a servant, a deaconess of the church. And then we read about in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1 that Paul greets the elders and the deacons at the church at Philippi. That's all we've got in the whole of the Bible as it relates to these individuals. This is what I take from that in my careful study. The scripture is so clear about the criteria, but almost absurdly unclear about the duties and the responsibilities. I believe the Holy Spirit intentionally did that. Because in every local church, there are so many different things and tasks and practicalities that need to be taken care of. I believe if the Holy Spirit had put it in there, what we would do like we do typically in our formal Christianity, we'd just tick the boxes and say, okay, well, I did that, did that, did that, now I'm done. Whereas in this particular situation, we are given absolutely no lists, no specific responsibilities, except that they're to serve the church. And that their tasks ought to alleviate those called to pastor the church, that they might focus their attention on prayer and the word. That's the goal. See, sometimes we look at this as a tiered system. We say, well, you know, there's the Lord Jesus Christ at the top, which is true. But then we say, you know, well, spiritual leadership and practical leadership and then everybody else. That's not how this works. We know that Christ is the head. We know that God has put spiritual leadership in place in the form of pastors and elders. But deacons and deaconesses, there's no criteria. There's no one. There's no tiered function in that except that they meet the criteria and then they do the work as it is before them. Practicalities of the church. So I want to be very careful this morning as we draw to a close about not being too prescriptive here. I think the role and the responsibilities of deacons and deaconesses is fluid. I don't think it's subject to a specific duty list or task of items. Let me give you some examples perhaps that relate to us here at Mount Cathedral Community Baptist Church. Perhaps the deacons and deaconesses would be involved directly in overseeing the collecting and distributing of the monies. Something that the elders really don't need to be a part of. They could be involved in visiting the sick, the poor, the elderly in the congregation and helping with their practical needs. They could meet specific practical needs in the life of the church. Perhaps they could be those cooking a meal, writing a card, cleaning, gardening, whatever else is required in lives of people in our church. We are blessed to have a church building that we meet in. 
There's maintenance needs, there's grounds needs, there's cleaning, building projects, flowers, packing and unpacking of chairs, tidying, sorting, you name it. The list goes on and on. There's ushering and welcoming. There's designing of flyers, printing, newsletters, ordering, organising, supplies, etc. Tidying, filing, sorting, serving in all manner and forms. And all of that can be done by those who are general ministers of an assembly, but specifically those who are called to lead in those areas, to oversee those areas. Those are just some examples. Just some examples of what could be done by way of deacons and deaconesses for those who meet the criteria. I hope that's clear. The last thing that I want to cover this morning before we finish in our fourth point. So I want to just touch on dangers to be avoided. And I want to just bring this entire leadership study together, if I can, for just a couple of minutes. We've talked about preeminent leadership, pastoral leadership, and now practical leadership. just want to bring it all together and help us see some dangers in two categories. Dangers, that is leadership pitfalls for those who are in the leadership roles, and then congregation pitfalls. just want to cover those two off before we finish. There are pitfalls... To avoid whether you serve in leadership or whether you serve generally. Let's deal with the leadership pitfalls first. And let me be quick to say that as a as one called to be a spiritual leader in this place, all of these are a reality of a struggle in my life all the time. Nobody uh, is exempt. The first one. Pride. Pride. An improper perspective of yourself. When you are in leadership, whether it's practical or spiritual leadership, there can be a mentality to say, I'm always right, knuckle under and do what I say. Pride is a reality in the life of every person. Nobody is exempt from pride in its various forms. And so when you pray for the leadership, pray that God would keep them humble. And when you pray that, you're actually praying that they would go through various trials and tribulations to bring about brokenness and humility. So thank you very much for that prayer. Pride. Number two, pitfall for leadership. Domination. Dictatorial ruling. Just obey me mentality. The exact opposite of what Peter tells the church there as it relates to an elder who doesn't come in like a dictator in 1 Peter chapter 5, but lovingly administers grace and discipline when necessary to the sheep in their care. Um, churches are filled with domination. And that's not God's design. And that comes directly out of the first point, pride. Um, we ought not to be dominating terry and i in our spiritual leadership and others in the future we need to be ever so careful about not dominating not thinking that we are something when we're not but at the same time recognizing that god has entrusted to us the privilege and the priority of preaching the word and as we preach the word we can compel you to obey the word but not the person the person doesn't matter the word matters Number two, domination. Number three, another pitfall that must be ever so carefully looked at and avoided at all costs, disqualification. We ought to be checking this list. Church, you ought to be checking this list. I ought to be checking this list regularly for us. As you look at Terry and myself in our leadership role and deacons and deaconesses in due course, need to look at this list and say, is this individual meeting the criteria? That's the reason why every year I ask that you would re-vote me in as pastor. Because I want to be ever so careful that there is nothing in my life or no conflict that is occurring in our church that is not being taken care of before the Lord God who sees it all. We want to be ever so careful. And if you notice something in, in our lives, it is your privilege and responsibility to approach lovingly and say, Hey, listen, just concerned a little bit about this. Concerned about the way you responded to that person. Concerned about the way you, uh, you spoke or, or whatever the case may be. That's what we must do for each other. That's what church is. That's what we do. So it's very important that you look out for the leaders and that we look out for you. Number four, 
This one's hard. Number four, improper motives. Improper motives. It can be people-driven. It can be self-focused, self-serving. You know, it's very easy to, uh, to dress up nice this morning to get here and to, uh, to look the part and have you think that there is a spiritual individual uh, abiding within these clothes that's going to speak truth to your life, etc., etc. It's easy to do that. And you can't necessarily tell the difference. That's a work of the Spirit of God. But the leadership must constantly be checking spiritual motives. You must be checking your own motives. When you come to a service like this this morning, you ought to walk in the door and say, Now, Lord, is my motive a passion for Thee? Is that my motive? Or am I here because, you know what, I've got to tick a box. I might get a call from the pastor during the week. I want to be here. I need to be here. or whatever, Whatever the case may be, our motive must be supreme love for Christ and His people. Anything else is a false motive. Must be ever so careful about improper motives in the leadership as well as in the people. Number five. This one I'm learning a little bit about myself in my own walk with the Lord. False expectations on others. See, here's what I used to think. I used to think, and this is to my my own detriment to share this, but I used to think that every Christian ought to be at everything. That's ridiculous. I can't believe I used to think that. But I used to think that Christians, you, you need to look, hey, we've got all these things. We've got youth group. We've got kids club. You know, Claudine ought to be playing basketball with us at youth group. You know, and all these different people ought to be involved in every aspect of our church. And that's just not right. Because you know what the problem is? I used to think that identity as it relates to church was what we did as opposed to who we are. See, you are still part of this church when you're out in whoop whoop. Some people would say this is a book. But that's true in relationship to we are. This is us. If you are called to be a part of this local church, you're a part of this church, whether you like it or not. Because the Bible tells us that we are one body. We have been called together for such a purpose as this. So it's not, it's not that we have to be at everything. And it's not that there is this uh, expectation that you know everybody's doing everything all the time. Not at all. However, I will say this. Again, the balance. God has called us to serve. And he's given us a gift, which, by the way, is going to be the subject for our next few weeks. Spiritual gifts. Get ready for that. We're going to talk about what God has given to this local church and local churches in general to serve with. There is a great balance to be had in all of these things. But I tend to have false expectations on others. I tend to think that the energy and the strength that God has given me, which I recognize in my own life, is a lot in comparison to others, that everybody should be doing the same thing. That's not right. God has given different abilities, strengths, skills, etc. to different people. Number six, we're, we're getting there. Again, leadership pitfalls, discouragement. This is number one you need to pray for with me. I'm not sure about Terry. Terry doesn't ever seem to get discouraged, but <laughs> I certainly do. <laughs> um, in my own life, I struggle with discouragement. I struggle with you know, things going on. Uh, let me give a, a personal example, and it, it cost me some last night, some time. Last night we had youth group. Um, I'd prepared for around about three hours this uh, message that I was going to share. I was excited about it. I had a great PowerPoint presentation, all these graphics going. Everybody was just going to wow everyone, which was part of the problem, right? And I, shared, I was going to share this, uh, this message, and, and would you believe the projector would not work? It was like an almighty finger from heaven had just stopped that thing. I own a technology shop up there. I know how projectors work. This thing wasn't going to work. It was nothing. It was not going to work. And I went home last night and I got into bed, had a little bit of rest. And I was a little bit frustrated, a bit discouraged and thought, Lord, that's, that's not fair. I, I was working for you. And I, I don't know. I don't know about you, but I, I don't know if it's a Jewish thing or not. But I have this kind of weird relationship with the Lord in that I sort of argue often out loud with the Lord. And I, and I say things like, um, obviously, you don't care about me anymore. I feel a bit like Elijah sometimes. You obviously don't care about me anymore, Lord, because, you know, I spent all this time and then you don't let the projector work. And, well, I'm not going to talk to you tonight. I'm going to sleep. And then, you know, you can't sleep. And you say, Lord, I'm, I'm really sorry. I know you're in charge. And, and, and I know that. To be honest, in the, the nicest way I can put it, I'm just an idiot. That's simply to put it. I'm a worm, I'm dust, and then you get yourself right. But sometimes that discouragement can really seep into your character. And you find yourself, even days on end, struggling with it. So pray for leadership as it relates to discouragement. Can't do this anymore mentality. Nobody supports me. Nobody loves me. I'm just going to have a pity party here under this juniper tree with Elijah. 
Number seven, leadership pitfalls, the last one under this, negligence. The single greatest problem in church leadership today is the leader's personal walk with God. That's the greatest problem. The greatest problem is that it is really, really easy for me to come here like I did this morning in the early hours of the morning and just prepare to preach. Just prepare to preach. Just have this mentality. Okay, I've got to get this done for that. Then I've got yay Bible study. Then I've got this. And all I'm doing is just preparing messages for different things. But in actual fact, I'm not feeding my own soul. I'm not personally walking with the Lord. You are vicariously living through me, if you like, because all I'm doing is just preparing this preaching and so on. But there's no real walk with God. That's a great danger. That's negligence on the part of the preacher or the pastor. And they have got to be, I have got to be so careful. Negligence in their personal family. Negligence in the church work itself. All of these are pitfalls that the leadership can fall into. Okay, now that we've put Terry and I here and any deacons future to come, now it's your turn, congregation. Um, I'm going to give you four, five things real quick before we finish. Dangers to avoid for you as the congregation. And I'm not going to tear strips off anyone at all. The first thing, and this one is really easy to do, laziness or apathy. So here's the mentality that we can have in church. Someone else can do this. Or I'm too busy. Or worse, I don't care. Apathy has destroyed the church of Jesus Christ. It's destroyed it. We get to Revelation chapter 3 and we read of Laodicea and the Lord Jesus says to them, you're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. So much so that, you know what, I'm going to spit you, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. You are not in one sense even worthy of me having you because you are neither hot nor cold. You're in this middle. I'd rather you were cold and distant from me than this mediocre, middle, apathetic type attitude that is the prevailing concept in church today. We need not be apathetic. Let's get a passion and a zeal that comes from the Spirit of God to do His work so that we would, we would love God supremely, that we wouldn't be just pew warmers on a Sunday. It ought not to be that we have some sort of Sundayistic type Christianity. We don't live for Sunday. We live for God moment by moment every single day. Sunday is just the outflow of our worship. Sunday ought not to be, I'm going to worship on Sunday. Well, there's a problem there. You should have already been at worship all day long. Now you're coming together for collective worship. Let's not be apathetic towards the things of God. Number two. This is now the other way. Congregation can fall into this pitfall of false expectation on the leadership. So I have talked to some Christians and I don't know, I I call it the Messiah mentality. They think that the pastor is somehow supposed to be almost the Lord Jesus Christ incarnate again. Because he is never, ever able to make a mistake, never, ever able to wake up with a bad attitude. Never, this, I think I shared with a few weeks ago this concept of Superman. He, he's, this, he's this individual who is just able all the time to have a perfect attitude at all occasions, never has any problems in his marriage at home. Everything is just dandy. That's not true. But at the same time, there is an expectation that he would abide by the general principles of the word of God recognizing he falls but he gets back up and continues walking in a sanctified lifestyle false expectations Um, perhaps in this realm there would be those who say they just don't do it right I just don't like the way they sing that song. I don't like the way the church building doors go in and out. Um, I think that the church leadership should change this or they should change that or, or we should all have books or we should all have on the projector. If, if we had to cater to everybody's personal idiosyncrasies and desires, there'd be one of us here, right? It would only be me because mine are totally different to all of yours. We need to be very careful about expectations that are not biblical. Things that are not biblical don't matter. They can be uh, altered and changed and evolving and growing and so on. Let's not have false expectations. Thirdly, two more to go. Jealousy. Congregation pitfalls as it relates to the leadership. Jealousy. I want that role. That's not fair. I want to be doing it. I could do that better. Why won't they let me have a turn? And so on. I think you get the picture. Number four, insubordination. 
Now, again, this is not dictatorial leadership that we're talking about. We're talking about an individual, a Christian in a church who says, I will not submit to the authority of God's word as it is seen in the local church, in the spiritual leadership. I won't submit. Uh, That is an individual who, if they remain in that way, the church must discipline them because that's what God designed it for. It's not that we go out of our way to discipline people, but God said very clearly in his word that those who will rebel against me need to be disciplined. And so at some point we're going to have a discussion about that, but there is a... There's an understanding we need to have in the scripture as it relates to true, godly, loving discipline, always with the intention of recovery, never abandonment, which we see everywhere. Insubordination. Number five, finally, and that is discontentment in the church. I don't like the way this is done. I want it my way. And so on. Pride, domination, disqualification, improper motives, false expectations on others, discouragement, negligence, all pitfalls for leadership, congregation pitfalls, laziness or apathy, false expectations on leadership, jealousy, insubordination, discontentment, and the like, and the list could go on and on. As we conclude this morning, this mini-series, and you've been so patient with me, just want to read a portion from 1 Corinthians 12. Don't turn there. Let me just read this to you. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body though many are one body so it is with Christ for the body does not consist of one member but of many but as it is God arranged God foreordained God chose God elected to the body each one of them as he chose Church, as we close this little mini-series on church leadership, I hope that not only has it been helpful and fruitful to you, but that we understand this as it relates to the Scripture. Not out there, the Scripture. And may God help us, first of all, to submit entirely to the preeminent leader, Jesus Christ, to the spiritual leaders, and then that we would give those who are practically called to leadership those areas of responsibility. May God bless us as we seek to submit to God's method, God's rules, God's mandate for his church. Father, thank you so much for this time we've had together in your word. Thank you that we could begin by looking at you as the great servant. And there in my mind's eye, I see the son of God. There he is uh, wrapped in humanity, clothed in humanity. And yet still the glorious one from heaven, bending and stooping to wash the disciples' feet. And not only to do that, but then to instruct his disciples who would go on to, many of them be authors of the very book we're reading, tell them to go and wash others' feet. Lord, we desire to be true disciples, regardless of what roles and responsibilities specifically we have in the church as disciples, which every one of us is. Lord, may we be servants, prepared to wash the dirtiest feet, even the enemies, the ones who betray us. May we wash their feet. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the study we've been able to do over the course of the last month or so. May you be pleased to bless us here in this assembly as we would seek together, unified, uh, to live according to uh, what the scripture says. Thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.